Good morning. Happy Sabbath. We are glad to be back after another week. We want to thank our guest panelists from last week, and we've been receiving so much positive feedback from some of the things you saw. So we hope that our guests blessed you, and now we hope even more that our God blesses you. So before we begin, as we always do, let's have a word of prayer. Dear God, we would simply pray for clarity. For clarity that is found only in the cross. We pray that the hope made available through the death and resurrection of Jesus continue to spur us on as we consider the lives we have to touch and the shifts we need to make today and always. And we pray in your name. Amen. Today we talk about that which Jürgen Moltmann says lies at the very heart of the Trinity, which is the cross. And I think Moltmann, as he understands and as he begins to unpack this delicate dance that occurs among the three members of the Godhead, realizes that this sacrificial death and resurrection are woven together in each of the persons of the Godhead, the Son as he lays down his life, the Father as he lays down that protective desire to intervene, and the Spirit as it or she lays down its desire to continue to comfort in that period when darkness seemed to engulf the world. Today we talk about this moment, this occasion of grief and pain and death as a way to go into a new form of existence, life, hope, and the whole crux of the Christian confession, Jesus is risen. Joey, welcome. How are you doing? Uh, welcome back. It's good to have you back on the best coast, which is, after all, the West Coast. <laughs> yes. Although I will say I did appreciate some things about the East Coast. It was uh, the change of the fall colors were beautiful. But um, I would not want to live through months of snow. So I'm glad to be back mm -hmm. here in Loma Linda. And wintertime is actually one of the better times here in Loma Linda. So. The best time. Yeah. We have sun. Just the beauty of nature. So winter is the best of times and the worst of times in some other places. Yeah. So we talk about today as we've been doing this whole quarter about this idea of death. And we talk about death in uh, at a personal level. We talk about death intellectually. We've spoken about what happens when you die. 
We've obviously talked about the angst and the separation that occurs once death uh, comes into the picture. We haven't talked, however, about the fact that the whole Christian hope, Christianity in essence, is a faith tradition that is based in death and resurrection. Oh, it's well said. Yeah, that, and that's that's the almost strange beauty of Christianity, right? That um, God died, mm-hmm. which it, I don't think is present in any other tradition where God dies for the for the sake of saving humanity mm-hmm. and by his death makes it possible mm-hmm. for humans to live. Um, and I don't know all the religions out there, so there may be some that have that. But um, if you look at um, the, the the major monotheistic religions, you don't see that mm-hmm. um, present in those. This idea of God being willing to die and and yet that moment that is is the greatest, what looks like the greatest loss for for God becomes his greatest achievement. And that's the that's the great reversal we see throughout the gospels, especially in the book of Luke, of how um, God seems to flip things around. The, the weak became become strong, the poor become rich, and 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 the dead come to life. Mm-hmm. And and that's why, you know, Paul says this is foolishness. This is foolishness right. to the Greeks because it's it seems incomprehensible that um, someone who dies such a horrific death, that that moment could be called a victory, mm-hmm. and yet it is. That's, that's, I think, well, well said, well stated. Uh, and it, I think it, it also belays the capacity that God has to co-opt both language and symbols. Mm. Um, Christianity is also a faith tradition that is deeply rooted in symbols. Uh, whether during the early years of the church, it was those three lines that they used to mark on the doorways of the early Christian churches, or the fish, or the acronym, um, or the cross. Christianity has this capacity to co-opt language and symbol and transform something that up until that moment, right, has really negative connotations. And through this paradoxical reality that is created and recreated by a God who becomes human, uh, is 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 also uh, allowing us to speak differently, and so I think one of the things that you said is is fantastic, which is Jesus's death and resurrection allows us to realize the depths and the widths of God's love for us, mm-hmm. um, and in that sense, it's very unique. The self-sacrificial. Uh, desire of the divine. It also, though, because it co-ops language and symbols, it it does allow us to speak about death Mm. in a different way. Uh, You were mentioning Paul saying it's foolishness. And what he means by foolishness, right, is this idea of a God that would self-sacrifice. And in the same breath, he will say, where, O death, is thy victory? Mm. And so, it, it's foolishness, I think, because it, it forces you to think about language and reality and symbolism in a different way. Yeah. He, he, he takes, um, takes the way that we would normally think about reality and then reframes it mm-hmm. um, to, to give a new message, which, <laughs> which, 
which was very difficult. And I think the lesson did a great job of bringing that out mm-hmm. and how, how challenging that was for his disciples, his followers to grasp because he was taking their frame of reference about what the Messiah was here to do, calling himself towards the end, calling himself the Messiah, even affirming the fact that he was the Messiah, and yet saying the path that you think the Messiah is going to take is completely different than the path that I'm Mm -hmm. actually going to take. Uh, And that, I think, is why the word you used is so apropos, right? You said reframing. Uh, I want to expound a little bit on that concept because I think if I had one takeaway Mm -hmm. from the lesson, it's that uh, this week that what God does or what Jesus is in the business of doing is altering frames of reference. And I think uh, one of the things that we need to do if we are to have our frame of reference altered is we need to start analyzing the stories we tell ourselves. Mm. Uh, So as I was reading the lesson, I came across an article uh, for the Harvard Business Review, and it was looking at branding And uh, it was comparing two primary brands of equal quality. Uh, So one of those brands was uh, McDonald's and McDonald's Coffee. Uh, There's a place now uh, in every McDonald's. It's called a Mac Cafe. Mm. And so they serve uh, specialty coffee. Um, And and then they were comparing that with something within the same range of quality and expectation, uh, which is Dunkin' Donuts. Mm. And they looked at a 12-ounce cup of coffee in both, or Sanka if you're Adventist or Postum, uh, in both stores. And the McDonald's cup of coffee was a dollar, and the Dunkin' Donuts cup of coffee was a dollar fifty-nine. So, the Dunkin' Donuts uh, coffee was fifty-nine cents more, and it was outselling uh, in that that quarter it massively outsold uh, McDonald's. And so the question I think that uh, the people were trying to ask as they analyzed the, these price fluctuations and differences was why would people uh, pay 59 cents more or 59% more for a cup of coffee of equal quality um, and where their expectations aren't that different? Mm. Uh, and it has to do with the stories we tell ourselves, right? Mm. So there is this association with McDonald's, particularly in America, uh, with you know fast food and poor quality, and all. Basically, McDonald's has become in marketing the poster child mm-hmm. for everything that goes wrong uh, with the food industry, and that story. Mm. Um, was really affecting the way they did their bottom line. Wow. Conversely, in Europe, Mac Cafe or the McDonald's was outselling and outpacing Starbucks, which I think most people would agree is a higher quality, higher expectation mm. level, but they were completely obliterating them in Europe. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that and again, they didn't say that, but I I would surmise, is because that baggage or that story that we tell ourselves about McDonald's isn't the same story the Europeans tell themselves about McDonald's. So if yeah. you think about what McDonald's means in the European mindset, it has to do not with 
American excess, but 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 with freedom, mm. with uh, the end of the world of the Second World War and kind of the restitute the restoration of uh, Western Europe, and mm. then behind the communist blocks, the fall of communism and the entrance of hope and a new opportunity. And so I think the product doesn't change, mm. but the stories they tell that are linked or attached to that product, the stories we tell ourselves change. And I think that's what Jesus is doing throughout mm. the gospels. He's forcing the disciples to reassess the stories that they're telling themselves. Wow. That, that's so powerful. And as you were telling this story, I was thinking, yes, that's exactly what's happening there. The, when I think of McDonald's because of, you know, um, doc, documentaries like mm -hmm. Super Size Me and Fast Food Nation and all of these that have come out and talked about the poor quality mm -hmm. of food and um, where the food is coming from and how it's being used and how it massively, in, in the case of Super Size Me, detrimentally affected someone's health to the point where he went from a place of really good health and then eating McDonald's all the time and to the point where the doctor said, uh, you need to stop or you're going to really do yourself some harm right. here. Um, so that, that, that difference, um, that, that's the story I, I tell myself every time I pass a McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, what you're pointing out in, in Europe, they have a completely different picture. I, you know, the same thing happened to me the first time I went to Korea and, um, you know, in Korea, there's lots of Korean food, which um, if you haven't ever had before, it's delicious. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, after being there a while as a teenager, I wanted some pizza. And so I asked to go to a pizza place. And I found out later pizza in Korea is super expensive. It's like high class food, which... Here in the United right. States, unless you go to like some some wood fire grill beast or whatever, it's it's pretty cheap, inexpensive food, right? It's um and and yet in Korea there was this because it was Western food, it was American food, it was so much more expensive and so much harder to get than um, than typical Korean food, and uh, it's just it was it was surprising to me how. The same pizza, because it didn't taste any different. When I went mm. to Korea, I had their pizza. It tastes the same as, as the pizza <laughs> in the United States. It didn't taste any different. The quality was the same. And yet they were able to charge way more in Korea because of the stories that people mm -hmm. told themselves about the food. And you're saying, Jesus, part of what he does is to reframe our stories yeah. so that we, what, what he did with the disciples is to reframe their stories so that they realize that the Messiahship was not about just victory and overcoming and conquering, but doing that through loss mm. and death. So, and I was thinking, uh, as I've read, and we're going to jump into a couple of the passages that the lesson talks about, but I was thinking for our friends out there, a way in which this is exemplified in the Gospels. And in my mind, there are there are really three places where uh, where Jesus uses, for lack of a better word, a uh, this kind of push into marketing to offer up a vision of his reign that is markedly different from the stories that Israel's been talking about. So the first one, I think we all uh, can kind of guess. Um, a, man, a young man, we call him the rich young ruler because mm -hmm. he has different attributes uh, adjudicated to him throughout the Gospels, comes and says, uh, good teacher, uh, 
what am I to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And already you're kind of seeing how Jesus is being set up. Mm -hmm. um, because in a, in a culture uh, where these distinctions between the sacred and the profane, the holy and the unholy, the clean and the impure, the good and the bad are really, really clear. Um, the, the question is actually going to try and press Jesus on one side or the other side of the fence, which is ultimately what we do, right? Usually the stories we tell ourselves have two points of view, my point of view, which is right, and then those who disagree with me and obviously their point is wrong. Mm. Good teacher, what am I to do to inherit mm. uh, the kingdom of heaven? And he says, well, keep the commandments. Um, and he summarizes, right, the law in these two commandments, love for God and love for your neighbor. And the question then is asked, well, who is my neighbor? Mm. And it's probably, if not the most, um, then certainly after the prodigal son, it's the most famous parable Jesus tells. He teaches a story about a man who is going from uh, going down from Jerusalem into Jericho and uh, gets waylaid by robbers and gets beaten up. And behold, a uh, priest walks by. Mm -hmm. The priest sees him and obviously in, in this culture of holiness and unholiness, cleanliness and uncleanliness, you, he cannot, he doesn't want to touch the body. Mm -hmm. Although, Within the law, there are there is a permission, right, to touch a body if life is being threatened. You're actually called to do so. But he doesn't want to worry about that, so he moves on. And next comes a Levite, also doesn't really uh, want, to, want to bother. You have uh, the scholar, right, the teacher of the law, don't want, to, don't want anything to do with it. Mm. And these stories are usually told in threes. For the audience, I think what they're there at to that moment, if you're hearing Jesus, the audience themselves is really tracking because mm -hmm. they knew about uh, priests and Pharisees and Sadducees that didn't really care about the people. They knew about a religious system that was broken. They knew about teachers of the law and expert theologians that had no righteousness uh, and no caring compassion. So they knew. So they're expecting the, the, the last one, the one who truly shows you how you are to behave, to be them, mm -hmm. right? They're expecting to hear, and then be, and lo, behold, and a common person walked by, someone mm -hmm. like you and me. But Jesus doesn't do that. He mm -hmm. says a Samaritan. Wow. And that would have really forced, right, the people that are listening, because let's face it, most of them aren't Pharisees or Sadducees or teachers of law, they're common folk. That would have forced them to, to re reframe, which is what mm -hmm. we're talking about. And so I think often when it comes to scripture, particularly when it comes to the most important confession that we have to make, which is the death and resurrection of Christ, we need to be very careful with not becoming like the original audience in that parable that says, well, we know how the story ends. We've got oh. it. Um, those people don't. Um, those people within the same faith tradition, we see their problems, right? But we understand. Mm -hmm. It seems like Jesus is using reframing 
uh, not for the people who are on the outs, but for those who are closest to him. Wow. And it seems like God does that throughout scripture, like even from the Old Testament times mm-hmm. all the way to New Testament times, what people expect God to do almost never happens. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, I can't remember a time when the people expected God to move a certain mm-hmm. way and God moved that way. It was usually, God usually surprised them, mm-hmm. right? And and it's not because some of these people very, very faithfully followed God, right? There was, you know, when, when Nehemiah and, and Ezra were trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, on Zerubbabel, re- rebuilding the temple, they expected a certain, for it to reach a certain quality, mm-hmm. to do something different. They thought they were going to reestablish the D- Davidic kingdom, mm-hmm. and they never did, right? And these are people who very faithfully followed God. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they were, I mean, uh, I dare say they had a closer relationship with God than I do, mm-hmm. and yet they were surprised by the way that God decided to move. They were surprised by how long it took, the rebuilding process took. They they were surprised by how it wasn't as glorious as they ever thought mm. it would be. They they never became the kingdom that they never they thought it would be. And that theirs is not the only story. Over and over again, these people who are following Jesus, and here in 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 this lesson, the very disciples who lived with Jesus, mm-hmm. they also could not see what God was trying to do in the moment. So I wonder, for us, you know, you said we have to be careful that we're not stuck in that mentality we allow God to reframe us. But we as Adventists have spent a lot of time studying the, the end of time, eschatology, right? We've, we've spent a lot of time studying what God is going to do, mm. we study the prophecies, and we have an idea of what, how God is going to move. But should we expect God to surprise us? Because it seems like every single, at every single turn, God's people have been surprised. And it's not because they didn't try to understand what God God was going to do, but it seems like, honestly, maybe we are not able to understand fully what God is going to do, no matter how well we study and how well we prepare, that there's going to be surprises that we don't expect. It's a really good question. And so question I think that forces us to analyze not only what we believe about this act, which the lesson is talking about, the death and resurrection of Jesus, but let's face it, it forces you to reassess your whole framework. Um, yeah, I think, so I think there's a couple, well, there's two primary problems that come to mind when we look at our traditional under eschatological, big word today, understanding. And that is, you mentioned, we've spent a lot of time studying. Mm -hmm. The problem isn't that our faith tradition is overly rationalistic, it's that it lacks discernment. Mm -hmm. We Adventists are not really good, uh, as some of the other faith traditions, at pursuing God in discernment. which is something I think that is grounded in scripture, right? To this idea of uh, you need a, the New Testament will say you need to test the spirits, right? Mm-hmm. There, there is this, this, there needs to be at least this opportunity for spiritual discernment. And the question is, well, how do we get there? And I think 
maybe a starting point is, is by doing two things when it comes to our eschatology. Um, I find, and this might not be the, the case in if we're looking at the whole swath of Adventist eschatology, but I find uh, that our eschatology is really anthropocentric. Um, it's really focused on, on humans. Mm. Um, I wonder what a more theocentric eschatology would look like. Mm. So a, an eschatology that is solely focused on God's redemptive act, not on how mm. the remnant is doing, not on how the remnant is, is behaving, because all, the remnant is one thing and one thing only, responsive, but it's mm. responsive to God's redemptive act. So what would it look like to build a theology, and particularly an eschatology that is theocentric? Hmm. The other question would be, what would it look like uh, to build an eschatology that is present-oriented rather than future-obsessed? Hmm. Uh, so if we're saying, hey, we, are a the we have a theocentric eschatology, our eschatology is focused on what God is doing, mm -hmm. then the the question that follows would be, well, how are we responding? Mm. And I don't need to wait until the Sunday law or the persecution or uh, the one world government or the one uh, currency or the or people to mark you with a microchip. I don't need to, work, to wait until all those things happen to start asking the question, how do I respond to what God is already doing? Mm. So I think if we are to, to follow a process of discernment, maybe those two things would be a good place to start. Wow, that is so powerful. Having a theocentric rather than an um, anthropologically centered um, um, eschatology and then asking it and or having it oriented to the present more than the future, yeah. right? The implications for us today rather than just waiting for something to happen right. in the future. That's, that's <clears throat> powerful um, because you're right. I mean... And it's very understandable why we center it on ourselves because because we are most important to ourselves, right? So it, it makes sense that we're going to focus on, okay, what are the implications for me in the future? How is, how is this going to affect my life in the future? So that all makes sense. And yet um, what we find in scripture is that people who do that tend to miss what God is doing mm. right in front of them mm -hmm. in the present and how God is moving. Mm. And you see that with the, um, the priests who were so concerned about protecting their position because they thought that really the salvation was going to come through the temple. So if the, the temple, no matter what, the temple system had to stand, otherwise God's work was right. lost. That, right. that was stuck in their mind. So, so when, you know, Caiaphas says, you know, it's better for one man to die. Yeah. I mean, it was very prophetic, but, but. That in his mind, it made perfect sense mm -hmm. because if if even if Jesus is a good man, you know, if he's going to fall, cause the downfall of, of the temple, then we need to get rid of him. Right. Right. Because the temple was the way that God was going to move in this world. And because he was so obsessed with that, like you were saying, he missed mm -hmm. what God, the amazing work that God was doing right mm -hmm. in front of him. And... Yeah. So what would it look like? What would it look like to be theocentric instead of anthro um, with human centered, have a human centered religion? I think it would mean that we have to be adaptable mm -hmm. because 
God seems to resist whatever boxes we put him. Mm. Like he c- continues to move. His, he is a moving target and he, um, whatever we think that we haven't figured out, he seems to break past it. And there's an interesting there's a, there's a, there's been some interesting studies done about resilience um, in recent years that resilience often comes not from having um, strong rigidity but from having a flexibility right and we see that we see that in um, with earthquakes mm-hmm. right we just our our neighbors here our um, partners here at Loma Linda the university had to build a new building because the earthquake code changed and it's because rigidity by itself will not survive mm-hmm. an earthquake you have to have flexibility there has to be there has to be rockers mm-hmm. and there has to be the ability for the building to move and shift and that's the only way it's going to survive a major earthquake um, is the ability to flex with mm-hmm. the ground instead of just fighting the ground and trying to hold its place right and I think that 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 is the same when it comes to our theology not because God changes or shifts. But because God is so big that oftentimes when we think we haven't figured out, we've only figured out a little portion of who he is. And then he shows us a completely different facet or side of him. And then our boxes don't work Mm -hmm. anymore. And unless we have the malleability to flex with God, to expand that, allow God to expand that view, to reframe like he's, like you said, that he's doing throughout scripture, our our faith will become rigid and will break. Mm. And we've seen that so many times, right? With people who had so much rigidity that God had to work a certain way. And when God does it, their faith is lost. So we need to have a little bit of malleability. That doesn't mean that we accept everything that comes, but but we have to give God the the ability to expand and flex and Mm. reframe Mm. our point of view. And that's, I think, where the discernment process comes in, as we've been talking about, because you're absolutely right. If we don't have flexibility, when the moment comes for faith to be tested, we break. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, the the one part that stays with me as I I consider particularly John 19, which, uh, which the lesson talks about. And I, I just, in my mind's eye, I could see Jesus surrounded by people who, up until a week before, had been very pro-Jesus. Mm. Um, yeah. The Galileans had descended upon Jerusalem to crown one of their own king. Uh, in the moment that Jesus doesn't fit that mold and that expectation, mm. they, the crowd turns on him. And John is really, really adept and really skilled at, at using that, that language, the crowd, to refer mm. to those two groups that, uh, that first are proclaiming Hosanna and then will we'll call him to be crucified. And it all has to do with the fact that he hasn't m- met their expectations. Mm. But maybe we can we can forgive the crowd because after all, the crowd didn't really know Jesus. They were in it for themselves. I mean, this idea of freedom from oppression in Rome mm. is is very positive. So maybe we can we can forgive uh, the the crowd. The disciples, it's harder, I think, mm. and I think you've been intimating that throughout our throughout our chat together. 
Because the disciples were with Jesus. They lived and breathed and spent time with him. And by the time John 19 rolls around, they're also gone. Mm. And it's not like Jesus hasn't tried to reframe their understanding of his work. This isn't the first time that he speaks about his death. Mm. And this isn't the first time uh, that Jesus in the gospel record speaks about a different type of kingdom. So kingdom in the Old Testament looked like uh, escape from Exodus. It looked like Passover. Mm. Um, Kingdom in the Old Testament looked like the great cedars of Lebanon Mm. uh, planted next through quiet waters. And Jesus kind of takes those image, those those iconoclasts. He becomes an iconoclast. He takes these these iconographic images these iconic mental pictures that they have, and he shatters them. Mm. And he says, you think that kingdom is Exodus and Passover? Well, let me tell you, kingdom is also a woman kneading yeast into bread. Mm. And we think about yeast and its capacity to expand, but what Jesus really means is yeast, as a Jew would have understood yeast, as that which is impure and Mm. unholy and worldly and profane. And I think the subtext there is, I get to determine, Mm -hmm. I, Jesus, get to determine what's holy and what's unholy. Uh, You think that kingdom is like the great cedars of Lebanon. Mm. Now, let me tell you, kingdom is a weed. It's a mustard seed that is a weed, and Jews would have hated mustard seeds (laughs) because they were actually, were were rabbinical prohibitions to planting mustard seeds in Mm. your garden because a mustard seed takes up everything. Mm. And so he takes the cedar and this Passover and makes it a a weed and a woman kneading yeast. That's it's all about reframing. You think that the king that the king is one that's going to come in majesty to reclaim David's throne. Well, he's not. He's going to come in a manger and he's going to die on a cross. And so it's this constant, I think, move that God has, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, another uh, ingredient that we might add to our process of discernment. Does this picture of God make me uncomfortable? Hmm. Um, I think there needs, and you've talked about this a lot, Joey, the need for discomfort Mm -hmm. uh, as part of the growth process. You've mentioned this on several of our conversations together, and it seems like that's that's what's happening here. God is saying, let me make you a bit uncomfortable. Uh, Because if you're uncomfortable, rather than dismissing it, um, you're going to ask the question, where is this distress or this discomfort coming from? And who knows? It might be God. Mm. Wow. And not just sometimes, sometimes not just uncomfortable, but a downright painful, mm. right? I mean, I just think about Jesus dying on the cross and what that must have felt like to his mother, what that must have felt like to um, his closest followers, the women that were standing there at the foot of the cross, to John, to his disciples who were just completely disillusioned and lost that so that most of them weren't even present mm-hmm. at his crucifixion, which, man, later on down the road, how many of them, I wonder, wish that they could have been mm-hmm. there for that moment. And yet for them, that moment that that seemed like the greatest loss, this is what we started mm-hmm. with, right? 
was actually the moment of Jesus's greatest victory, which is mind-blowing. And yet, and so the cross really is the ultimate reframing mm-hmm. moment for, for us because God took that which we thought was punishment, um, that, that we thought was the end, and he showed that it was just that he could make that a doorway to new life. And that's just incredible. And yet he does that over and over again. He's done that, we've talked about in the Old Testament, but he's done that since the cross as well. Moments where the martyrs are being persecuted and those churches feel like, oh, this is the end. Rome is just going to crush us under its foot. And yet the blood of the martyrs, we Mm. we say this, the church is built on the blood of the martyrs, martyrs. right? Um, We see that with Martin Luther, Martin Luther, when he, when he went for the, for the Pope and for the leaders of the church, this, this um, sect that's breaking off and causing all these troubles, they probably saw that as the beginning of the end. Like you're destroying the Mm -hmm. unity and the purity of the church. Mm -hmm. You're fragmenting the religion, the followers of Jesus. And yet we know that, that, that exploded Christianity. And for us as Adventists, the great disappointment Mm -hmm which at the moment must have felt like the greatest loss. And, and for, for many, it was a turning point where they walked away from faith. Um, and yet that for the Adventist church was the birthplace mm-hmm. for, for our whole movement, mm-hmm. right? So God seems to take these moments where, he, where it feels like loss because we have such rigid frameworks of how God, we expect God to move. Those moments feel like loss and yet God grows something incredibly mm. powerful from them. And what I hear you saying is, what are those moments in our lives? Mm. In our lives, are there moments where it feels like the greatest loss, where it almost feels like God is no longer present? Could it be that even in those moments, God is reframing our lives mm. for something even more? That is so well stated. Look, and the reality is, right, as you're mentioning, on this side of the cross where there are problems, God sees possibility. I loved all the examples you gave of just moments that it, it looked like defeat. Mm. And because of the cross, you have new possibilities opening up. And I think that is what really undergirds the passion story, at least in John's gospel. Again, the lesson talks a lot about uh, John 19, which I love. But uh, my favorite uh, past part of the of the Passion play in John is John 18, because it shows, I think it exemplifies so powerfully what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Here you have, everyone has abandoned him. And Peter goes, and there's a fire, mm-hmm. and the coals are there, mm-hmm. and he warms himself up. And he speaks with that gruff fisherman Galilean accent that was just impossible to hide. And it's so impossible to hide that people start recognizing it. And so they say, hey, weren't you the one? Mm. No, I wasn't the one. And this happens another two times, right? And if the cross is is Jesus at its at his most victorious the coal fire is peter at his lowest Mm. i don't know him i don't know the man um (laughs) meanwhile simon peter 
John is brilliant uh, at writing. 1825, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Mm. He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear, whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with didn't I see you with him in the garden? Now that's very intentional, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's this idea of the garden and the gardener. Mm -hmm. And John's going to use that imagery to connect Jesus' death and resurrection to Eden and, and this this problem that sin has brought. Mm. Um, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Mm. No. No, I don't want I don't want any part of Eden and mm. the garden or the gardener. Wow. And um, that's not only Peter rejecting Jesus's messianic call. That's Peter rejecting the whole hope that had spurred on this Jesus movement. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like him selling his birthright at that moment. <sighs> but the next time we see a fire mm. and we see coal yes. and we see people warming themselves it's going to be Jesus mm -hmm. and it's going to be Peter mm. and the gardener is going to call him and say, hey, take care of my lambs wow. on the other side of the cross. Right. Mm -hmm. We see. We see we see in God possibilities and potential. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, what's powerful about this, this notion that we've been talking about reframing that mm. on the other side of the cross, there's. There's unlimited potential for grace to do what grace will do. Wow. I love that. I love that. I love that because like I do, like many of us have probably done, um, Peter misses the reframing moment, mm -hmm. right? He just completely misses out what, on what God is doing in that moment, what Jesus is doing. This person that he has loved, he's been following for three and a half years, he completely misses out on it. And yet, on the other side of the cross, there's grace for him. Mm. So that even, even if we fall into that boat of being, being the Pharisees mm -hmm. and being, um, being the religious leaders who could have completely missed out, there's still grace available. I mean, I love how in Acts it talks about how there, there, were, there were so many of the Pharisees who became followers mm -hmm. of Jesus. These people who fought with Jesus so much during his his uh, ministry here on earth, they later become his his followers, and what a picture of grace, mm. of what grace can accomplish, mm. and what grace is available to us, so that even when even when we are rigid and our faith cracks, that doesn't have to be the end. Mm. That there can, there is grace available, and there is new possibility. I love how you say that. New possibilities available for us on the other side. And so the question then that we might be asking is, okay, so Jesus's death and resurrection have opened up the storehouses of grace in heaven. Mm. And we are wealthy and overabunding in grace. And the question is, how do we then express grace to those around us? Mm. Wow. And Joey, I'd love to to get your thoughts on this, but I think I think grace is best shared in Eucharistic moments. And what I mean by that is 
there's it's not a mistake that Jesus when he rises begins by introducing a liturgical service in acts if you think about kind of how traditional liturgies or liturgical services are are constructed uh, there's the reading of the word, right? Mm-hmm. And so this, these two disciples that are walking down the road to Emmaus are reading the word, but they don't understand. Mm-hmm. So then there's discussion of the word. And then there's a second reading of the word. This is how the liturgical uh, service is, is constructed. And they still don't understand. And it is only until you share in communion, right? The Eucharist, where mm-hmm. body and, and body is and, blood is spilled and body is broken, that they see it. And so I think uh, whether whether um, we as, as Adventists obviously have an open communion and we don't do it sometimes as much as some of us would like to do it, um, or other members, uh, other faith traditions that uh, for whom that is a part of their weekly uh, rhythms, what I think is really powerful is this idea of a table, mm. a table where we uh, feel and rejoice in grace, but then also a table that becomes a place where we break his body and we say, it is open to all. Hmm. Wow. That's such beautiful imagery. I love that. You know, the, the road to Emmaus where Jesus is um, opening up scriptures to to his fellow travelers over and over again. They don't get it. It's only when he's at the table and he breaks the bread that that they finally get it. Um, that's such a powerful imagery because I do believe that God is best understood in the context of community, mm. right? Um, the reality is, as finite human beings, we have a very finite point of view. Mm-hmm. And unless we're willing to listen to other people's point of view, um, we're not able to, we'll never be able to fully grasp the the complexity and the um the 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 broad and deep wideness of who God is, and so this idea that we have to come to the table together, and it is in those moments that we that we see God the best is is so powerful. Yeah. Well, thank you for sitting at this table with me as you do every weekend. Thank you for another Sabbath that you've shared. Uh, thank you for Sabbath fellowship, uh, which we always enjoy. If you're watching at home, invite somebody to your table on this Sabbath. Uh, share some grace. Share some of that richness and overabundance that we have in Jesus' death and resurrection. Joey, pray for us as we close. Our good and gracious God, you are our God of grace. Grace is probably the most mind-bending, reframing Mm. concept of all Mm. because you take what is undeserved and you impute it to us. Mm. You give it as a gift to us. So we ask that you help us to live grace-filled lives, that we give grace to ourselves, that when we when we make mistakes, when we miss the boat, when we miss those moments like Peter did and the other disciples did, that we are able to accept the grace that you offer to us, but also to show that kind of grace to the people around us, to have the flexibility to listen to other people's point of view and to show grace even when we disagree. Lord, help us to live grace-filled lives. Our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
And so, uh, whatever table you are, in whatever fellowship you partake, may grace hound you. May grace follow you all the rest of your life, is our prayer. See you next week. Thank you.